If you would, please, follow in the reading of the Word of God. Beginning in verse 1, chapter 4. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, in all humility, with gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Help us, Lord. Help us to understand the magnitude of these small six verses, and yet, Father, the essence of what we will be looking at in the rest of the book. Help us, Father, to understand the prayer that the Apostle Paul offered up for us at the end of chapter 3, that we understand that our strength in our inner man comes to the power of your Holy Spirit in your people. So, Father, as you begin to teach us this morning, I pray that we will be overwhelmed by the privilege of this high position that each child of God is in, but that, Father, that each of us would walk worthy and walk a lowly walk, a humble walk to the glory of the King in Christ's name. Amen. We have been looking at this section, understanding that what I call the lowly walk of our high position. And it's kind of amazing if you really think about it, that we are children of the creator of existence. And yet we should carry ourselves in humility. Father, uh, I I don't... It defies our logic, our understanding. And and so the Apostle Paul calls us in verse 1 to this worthy walk. Please remember, he comes out of a prayer at the end of chapter 3. And... In that prayer, if you read this thing as a letter, you don't have a chapter in it. It says, therefore, because of what I just prayed and because of the theology that I gave you in chapters 1, 2, and 3, what? Walk worthy. I shared with you last week a quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and that was written in the, I think, 1970 or I think 70, 69 or 70. And his complaint of the church at that time was that it was superficial. And I think if you're honest with yourself, that the basic characteristic of a large part of Christianity doesn't really know commitment. A large percentage of Christians are um, at best half committed. You know, I wonder what the church would look like if it was inconvenient. How would the church growth movement manage that one? I see uh, in many that it is the people are complacent. They are indifferent they are superficial. And I think there are times that uh, Christ's calling to them is an inconvenience. 
when I see that act and when I see that responsibility or lack of commitment and responsibility, then I also understand that it keeps people from understanding the Bible. I remember when I first started as pastor here, I would teach on Sunday morning the first section of the text, and then on Sunday night, I would pick up where I left off on Sunday morning. And I realized then that when I do what I do teaching through a book, the congregation was only getting 50% of the book because Sunday nights just people don't come out. That's when I changed and began teaching two books, one in the morning and one in the night, and yet I still look at the congregation and understand there are many who do not understand the Bible because they've never been exposed to it. If I do not understand the Bible, then I understand that it keeps me from making applications of it to my own life. But I also understand that it keeps me from obeying it because I don't know what it says. I don't know what it says. And if you think about it, this is kind of like the heart of everything. Do you realize what a sin it is to be indifferent? And yet it's so true. If you're half committed, then that means you're indifferent. If you feel put out or if you feel like you've been inconvenient, then that means you're indifferent. That means you have no commitment. And I wonder what happens then if it really gets hot. Superficial. There's a complacency in the church. But it's like I said, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was in London. I visited his church. It's just uh, about a half a block from Scotland Yard. I went into it and I thought, God bless, this man has passed away because if he saw what they were doing in this congregation, uh, I think it would kill him because it looked kind of like a circus. It's amazing. There were people, actually people who were non-believers from Paris who would fly to London on Sundays so they could hear Martin Lloyd-Jones expound Scripture. That sounds inconvenient to me because that was before they had that, what is that thing they call it goes under the train, it goes under the channel. So I was going to ride that once and then I realized that I could fly to Paris cheaper than I could ride that train. <laughs> and, and, and the view's better flying than it is underneath the channel. So here's three reasons that I think that this is happening. One is I, I believe that this actually, these are all kind of on the pulpit's fault. But I, I don't understand why. The, well, if the people are ignorant of the scriptures, then they can't hold the guys accountable. But one of the things that I have seen, and it seems to grow, and it started several decades ago, what I do is called textual thematic exposition. I take the text in its theme and explain it. Okay? 
And, and I start in chapter one, verse one, and I go through. Most of us in this congregation that have been in the church were under topical preaching where we would take a given topic about, I don't care, whatever. The problem with that is it is very simple to move from exegete to eisegete. Okay. Exegete says, this is what it says. Okay. Eisegete says, I believe this. Let me find a text that validates what I believe. Okay. Now, do you see where that kind of opens you up for, uh, shall we call it error? Some study the Bible without letting it say what it really means. And that's a serious sin. A serious sin. Let me show you. It's, it's not a, a new phenomenon. In Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 16, a fascinating term. Now, you've got to understand something. Peter is speaking of the Apostle Paul's writings. Okay, these letters that Paul is writing from prison. And he makes this statement. As also with all of his letters, his letters is Paul, okay? Speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort as they do also the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. Okay, so he's speaking of Paul's letters. Okay, now, I don't know about you guys, but I've read some things by the Apostle Paul that are a little bit tough to understand. All right, Galatians has got a a sentence that's almost half a chapter long. And and you just sit there and go, oh, dude, (laughs) don't hold your breath. All right. Uh, But when I look at that word in verse 16, that says distort in the New American Standard. Okay. The word in the Greek means to torture. Right. And it literally means distort. It's kind of funny because it literally means to put on a rack. You know what a rack is? Okay. It's a thing that you tie their hands and legs on opposite ends and then you crank it and it stretches and twists. All right. So he says, some people will stretch and twist. Listen, when you torture someone, you have a goal in mind. Okay. And that is to get that person to say what you want them to say. All right. And what Peter is telling us here is that there are people out there who will torture the scriptures to get it to say what they want it to say. That's one of the, the, the dangers of eisegetics. Because eisegetics says, I have a presupposed supposition. Let me go find scripture that validates my presupposed supposition. There are some people who will take the scripture and they will put it on the rack and they will twist it out of shape to make it say what they want it to say. 
That's a serious sin. That's part of the reason that I teach the way I do. I don't have that danger. I just got to cruise through the book. Twist the scripture and not let it say what it really means. It goes on in Christianity all the time. All over the place. And what is a tragedy is so many Christians have been raised under topical teaching that they have missed and they don't understand when it is being twisted out of shape for the person who is teaching. I remember years ago I was speaking at the state convention here in Colorado and I made a statement that raised a oh, a hornet's nest. You know what the statement was? There are not multiple interpretations of Scripture. Now think about that a minute. There are multiple applications, but there are not multiple interpretations. Okay, it says what it says. That's, you see that go on all the time. Why We have spin doctors. Somebody makes a statement, and then they got to go out and explain what the statement was. Well, I understood what it said. That text there by Peter says that there are those who will twist it. You know why they do that? They are unlearned and unstable. See, if I'm unlearned, if I don't know what it says, then guess what? I have no stability. All right, so if I don't know the attributes of God, then I get tossed to and fro. Why? Because I will create God in my own image. In the church, (laughs) I heard it described this way. They call it the hermeneutics of humility. It sounds really cool, doesn't it? You know what they're saying? I'm not smart enough to know what this says. Because this is God's word. Then why do we got it? (laughs) I mean, why would he give it to us if, but you're not going to get it. Oh, you're indwelled by the author. Those are the people who are unlearned, who are tossed. They are twisting the scriptures because they're not taught or they're not shown. Now then, do you understand why I'm on commitment? God has blessed the body of Christ with gifted men and women that are supernaturally empowered by the Spirit of God for the edification of the saints in rightly dividing truth so that we don't stand around unlearned, ignorant, and unstable. Listen, many have taken the scriptures and forced them into meanings that are improper, to say the least. It is a sin. There is so much false under the umbrella of Christianity. So much. It's amazing to me the quantity that is out there. I remember in the late 70s, 
The big thing was if you were struggling, go find a church. I can't do that with a good conscience now. I can't tell people, go find a church. Because there's all kinds of churches. But I can't tell you. And, and you know, people say, well, how do you know a good church? It only takes me a second. Is the word of God exalted in that building? Okay. If it's not, I ain't interested. I ain't interested. Hey, I grew up in the 60s and 70s. I know good music. That ain't church. People torture the scripture and they force it to say what they want it to say. And they will do it to justify their own behavior. I believe this. Let me find a scripture that bears witness. As a pastor, I have people, not so much anymore, but in early in my ministry, I had people saying, well, when can a Christian get a divorce? You know what you just told me? I'm going to get a divorce. What scripture validates me getting it? And I've had people who've left here and then went ahead and got a divorce. And, you know, they see me and they, they hold their heads in shame. I could care less. I told you what the truth was. Okay? A second thing that we have to watch is it's also a sin to study the Bible and let it say what it means, but then use it for our own ends. Okay? We looked at this in depth a number of years ago. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17. For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in sight of God. The terminology there is really amazing in the original... Some of the, the translations that are out there uses the corrupt the word of God, the, the huckster, the fraud. Okay, I remember a guy when I was in college years, golly, this is a long time ago. Don't hold this against me. He was my roommate and we had run out of money and, uh, and he decided that he would go out on the street corner and get some money. So we put on a bathrobe. He had a bathrobe, had a hood on it. And he stood out on the corner with the Bible in his hand, yelling and screaming. I don't even know what he was yelling and screaming. And people were putting money into a basket at his feet. Now, I knew Jerry very well. <laughs> I don't know what he was yelling or screaming. I was not raised in the church. All I knew is he had a Bible, and he was out there, had his hood on, looked like he was some kind of monk. And I thought... You people are stupid enough to throw money in that guy's basket. <laughs> I'm stupid enough to help Jerry spend it. <laughs> so I wasn't saved then. Come on. Everybody's looking at him. What are you doing? No, I wasn't saved. They rightly have the word, but they use it as a way to get their own ends. We don't see that much today, do we? Huh? Ever see that one? Guy wants a new Gulfstream jet. All right? Because the jet he got has a range of 4,000 miles. If he gets this new one, he'll have a range of 8,000 miles. 
So send money. You know what? He got the money. And I don't know how much a jet costs, but I, I bet it's more than $20. Okay? And yet he said, you know, God wants to send me, and my range is limited to 4,000 miles, so I need an 8,000-mile jet. <laughs> Try American Airlines. <laughs> I mean, it's a heck of a lot cheaper. But it did, you know, I've seen a bunch of them that do this. All right, the guy there in Houston, he's, you know, he charges. If you want to get up close, you have to pay for those seats. Really? I just don't trust people who smile that much. But you know what is a tragedy is? That people are not committed to the word of God as they should be. And so they take this and they say, well, it's got to be of God. Look how many people are here. They get fat and rich off the Word of God. So there's two things that we need to be very, very careful of. You can study and not let it say what it means. You can let it say what it means, but use it for your own ends. But there's a third thing. To study and let it say what it means and even have the right application and refuse to obey it. Okay? I have a text, James chapter 4, verse 17. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Okay? So I, there's a sin of twisting the Scripture. There is a sin of using the Scripture for my own end. And the sin of just flat out not obeying. Now then, do you see why there is a lack of commitment in the body of Christ? That's why in Ephesians, we had three chapters of theology. Okay? And then verse 1 of 4, we get the call. But before we start dealing with the actions, I told you that 4, 5, and 6 is the actions of the first three. Paul lays out a foundation. This is totally awesome if you think about it. He lays out what is your attitude before you start working this action. Your attitude will be based on your theology. What do I know of God that he planned in chapter 1 before the foundation of the earth that I should be called the son of God? That I have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. How does that affect my attitude? That's what these first six verses are dealing with. These are our attitudes. Because you can get people who do the right thing and they're doing it with the wrong attitude. You know what that is? Legalism. It's legalism. So two and three are these characteristics of how a worthy walk looks. Our attitudes for the purpose. 
And the purpose was what? The unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. Interesting. Still amazing when I think about the Apostle Paul writing this, but then I understand that he's under the influence of the Holy Spirit and how he lays it out step by step by step. And you just sit there and go, wow, man, this guy's like really, really smart. And then when I had the unity of the Spirit, then 4 through 6, you see what the cause is. Right? The call to walk is based on the urgency of who we are. Remember that therefore in verse 1? Because of who you are in Christ... Therefore, have these characteristics. Because in verse 4, when you have these characteristics, you manifest the unity of the Spirit. See how that works? That's totally awesome if you think about it. Okay, so it starts, remember how the prayer was? That you would be strengthened in the inner man by the power of, of the Holy Spirit? Why? Oh, because in chapter 4, you'll have this attitude. Because you've been strengthened in the inner man. It's really neat if you think. Or maybe you guys all had it all figured out and I'm just getting it. So the first one that we looked at it over the last few weeks was all humility. It's total. Total humility. The complete absence of pride. You know what I always look at it from? The complete absence of self. That's the bottom line of the Christian lineage. That's our foundation for the worthy walk. It's humility. I gave you in the last two weeks nine things that will tempt us to be prideful. But we must resist those. Why? Because my goal, your goal should be unity in the spirit and the bonds of peace. And you've got to have this attitude. You've got to have these characteristics. The second characteristic, second attitude. Depending on your translation, it's either the word meekness or gentleness. The New American Standard, it is gentleness. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Because this is progressive. If you think about it, Meekness is a product of what? Humility. Humility. Listen, there is no meekness. There is no gentleness if there is no humility. Got it? It's impossible. Those two will not exist in the same container. You cannot be prideful and be meek. Meekness only comes from humility. In humility, there will be meekness. Now, if you look at this text, it's so awesome. It starts out with all humility that will produce gentleness. And then that gentleness or meekness will produce what? Patience. And that will produce tolerating one another in love. And that will preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace. It's kind of cool. I think it's totally awesome. 
where these are, there will be unity. When you have these characteristics or you have these attitudes. See, that is the goal. We, that's the reason we are called to meekness. Why? So we will have unity. To walk worthy as an exalted child of the king, heirs of the kingdom of heaven, joint heirs with Jesus Christ, we must walk worthy. Okay? So we looked at humility. We looked at nine temptations of humility. So today we'll start laying a foundation for gentleness or meekness. Okay? New American Standard translates it gentleness. That is a better translation. I'll show you in a minute. It's interesting how the world sees it. Gentleness or meekness. All right? And you and I, we all have seen how the world views it. And in some cases, we may have even experienced it. Because I know for a fact, I've been around long enough to know for a fact, that the world does not understand gentleness or the word meekness. They don't understand it. In the dictionary, if you look it up, the word meekness, it's a deficiency of courage. Okay? Or it can be a deficiency of spirit. Okay? They're meek. They, they're just, they don't, they don't want to be in conflict. Humanly speaking, that makes sense. I've seen it. I've been around long enough. But I also know that in Galatians 5, that meekness is the fruit of the Spirit. When true meekness is produced by the Spirit of God, it is an amazingly valuable virtue. I would even go as far as to say it's a critical virtue. Very critical. But the attitude of human meekness, apart from the energy of the Holy Spirit, is seen by the world as cowardice. As a lack of strength. As a lack of strength. That ain't what the Bible teaches. To be meek. To walk worthy, the worthy walk. It has to be a person who is humble. Because that's where the meekness will come from. Okay, now the word in the original Greek. Okay, now I don't know what translation you got. It, here in the New American Standard, mine is translated gentleness. A lot of translates it meek, meekness. Protas is the word, protas. And it actually comes from a, a singular word, prows. And it means to be mild or gentle. So you see why gentleness is there? It has to do with a gentle heart. All right. Let me give you the opposite of it. Okay. The opposite of this word, protas, is someone who is vengeful, one who seeks uh, revenge, one who wants retaliation. That's the opposite of this word. Okay. It's a, it's an individual that would hold to bitterness. All right. Okay. This word here, is the complete opposite of that. I, I read one author and I thought it was really good. His definition of this, a quiet, willing submission to God, along with a quiet, willing submission to others. 
That's kind of cool, huh? Now you see that's not human nature, right? I, I kind of look at it in, in my great theological understanding. There are no R's. What does that mean? Well, there's no rebellion. There's no retaliation. <laughs> okay? It's sub- willing submission. Listen, natural man, and what I mean by that, lost man is all about self. All right? So if you're all about self, it's hard to be mild and gentle. If you looked at this word in secular Greek, it is used of a soothing medicine, actually a tranquilizer. Okay, I know <laughs> he's gentle. Why he's asleep? <laughs> so, but uh, it it has has to do with the calming and the soothing of the spirit. In some secular degree, it speaks of a, a gentle breeze that comes over the hills and comes down into the valley to cool the valley. And they'll use the word protos to describe that. It, it is also used when, when you break a colt. Okay, so you take that colt and, and you, you break it and now that power can be used for benefit. That's protos. Can be used for the benefit of other people. When you speak of people, if it's used in that term, you know, I've used it for a breeze and I've used it for a breaking of a colt. A, a protoss person would be a friendly person, a, a tender hearted person, a, a pleasant person, a, a gentle person, a, a person that has a sense of quiet. That's protos. That's meekness. That's gentleness that comes out of humility. Let me see if I can make it as easy as I can. Is that not the characteristic of Jesus Christ? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself, urge you, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Right? Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 29. I am meek and lowly in heart. That's what Christ said. You know, and I thought about this when I kind of go through these and I you, you're gathering all the words around from different writings and dictionaries and things like that. And I thought about it that he sends his disciples to do what? To enter into Jerusalem. Find the colt of a donkey, right? Now, a donkey is a very common animal. All right? It's, it's almost like him riding the colt of a donkey is adding to his meekness. How many of us in the first century church would ride into the battle on the colt of a donkey. Right? You just don't see the great general coming in on a donkey. 
Right? So that's, that's the meekness that is developed in the person of Christ. And the donkey said, yeah, I'll ride you. Come on, man. Let's go. Christ shows us his meekness. And honestly, if you truly want to be completely theological about it, is that not godly characteristic? I mean, if I look at God and his long-suffering forbearance, I mean, you just just look across the board. I'll give you one. You can go look it up yourself. Zephaniah. Do you know where Zephaniah is? <laughs> it's the Z book in the Old Testament. It's right next to Zechariah. <laughs> okay. Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 3. The Holy Spirit says, Seek meekness. In the New Testament, this word is used a few, a little more than 12 times in different forms. But it is a virtue. Meekness and gentleness, uh, I'm not sure, is a, is a virtue now. Uh, meekness uh, means that uh, I am here in a gentle spirit to soothe. I'm not here to aggravate everybody. Now, I got to say that I do it sometimes, but I'll deal with that next week. There's a biblical precedent. Sorry. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 23, fruit of the Spirit is what? Meekness. Gentleness. One of my favorite. Is in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul, speaking to Timothy, contrasts some of the things that are going on in the body of Christ. So if, if you look at it, he begins it in verse 11. But he contrasts it. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and into a snare, many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and received for themselves many griefs. Okay, so he's trying to say, okay, Timmy, here, here's some things that are out there. Verse 11, okay? Flee from these things. Okay, now, I want you to, this next phrase, you really need to pay attention to. Flee from this, what? You man of God. And I don't know about you, isn't that what you want to be known for? Or a woman of God? Ain't that what you want to be known for? Then, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Okay, but I want you to know something. Gentleness is not cowardice. What does he say next? Fight the good fight of faith. So you see that? A meek person still should fight the good fight of faith. You know what it means to fight, right? 
Well, I don't want conflict. I do if your faith is wrong. Okay? In James chapter 3, verse 13, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior in behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. I had to learn that as a pastor. I had was in a state of just massive amounts of theology, just and I felt like it was necessary for me to just beat the stew out of anybody who didn't listen to me on my theology. But then it dawned on me. God had to teach me, so God has to teach you. I'll give you the information. I can't make you take it. I told you guys one time that uh, regardless of what you think, the pastor is like a table waiter. I spend a week preparing this meal, and I just bring it out here and set it down, and whether you eat of it, it's purely up to you. Okay? Who is wise? His behavior is in gentleness. That is the wise one. That is the wise one. Okay, because, you know, I've made this statement. You know, I meet with pastors on a regular basis. And they make statements sometimes that are just like, what? Okay, and so instead of trying to argue with all of these highly educated people who have it all figured out, if you don't believe me, call them. Okay? I ask him a simple question. Where is that in the Bible? It's a simple question. I mean, let me tell you something. Your opinion is of great value to you. Okay? It's all said and done. It's God's opinion we probably ought to be paying attention to. Okay, now, he who is wise will do it with gentleness. But I want you to know something. I shared this with you out of 1 Timothy. That gentle spirit that is humble will fight. You know what? Will even get angry for the right thing. For the right thing. That mild, quiet, gentle, pleasant, soothing spirit not vengeful will not retaliate is not bitter except and you'll have to come back next week to find out what the exception is <laughs> okay same bat time same bat channel alright because you're, it's not a welcome mat it's not a doorman, floorman, whatever you want to call it. All right? But remember, the wisdom is behaves in what? Gentleness. He who is wise. Are you wise? O man of God. Are you gentle? Are you soothing? Listen, there are times you will serve, serve up truth, and it will do nothing but make somebody an old wet hen. Okay, and there's nothing you can do about it. 
It's the Word of God piercing, or cutting to the quick. Do you remember that at, at Pentecost? They would preach, and it would either pierce them or cut them to the quick. And one had a real bad response, and the other one not so much. I'll, sh- I'll share with this next week on, on what is it that this person who was humble has an attitude of all humility that has a soothing spirit, a gentle spirit, a meekness of heart, what will they fight for? What can they even become angry about? Ah, uh, you can't be angry. You're supposed to be gentle. Really? Was there anybody more gentle, meek than the Lord Jesus Christ? What did he do to the tables of the money changers? I know, he did it in meekness. (laughs) That's that's why they were always happy to see him roll into Jerusalem. (laughs) Okay, you've got to be, I mean, the eight woes of the Pharisees. So you kind of get a little bit of an idea where meekness kind of hits the wall and says, Nah, let's pray. Father, I come before you and thank you that you've laid this text out even just for me. I I totally am amazed when I continue to wander in your words, knowing that I'm looking at the mind of the Most High God, He who spoke existence into being. Father, the privilege you've given each and every one of us Father, let us not fall into the trap of twisting Scripture. Father, let us not fall into the trap of using Scripture for our own benefit. Nor, Father, let us fall into that deadly trap of just disobeying what you have said. So, Lord, uh, I pray for Castle Rock Baptist Church. I pray for those who are here. I pray for those who are not here. And, Father, that our commitment would grow. But, Lord, that each would walk worthy of this wonderful calling that you've given us. We love you, Lord. We thank you that you've given us this time together. And we praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.